Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Bas Foden. Hey Bas, thanks for coming on our podcast. It's great to talk to you. So the topic for today is less. What does less stand for? It originally stands for large-scale scrum, but usually now we just only use less and we don't often treat it as an acronym so much. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what your experience is. How did you get here? Okay. So I'm Boss, um, a product developer for a long time and lived most of my life in Asia, closer to you guys than now, and now living back in uh, Netherlands again, and lots of experiences with large-scale product development, and eventually encoded some of the things we did in what we now call this. I originally started as a software developer around the 90s. I was a software developer in the Netherlands in the dot-com period. So working in startups then, and then lived in China for a couple of years, worked there for Nokia, the Nokia network part, not the Nokia phone part, the part that is still Nokia now. And there started working for very large products and trying to figure out how to apply agile ideas to larger scale development. I was originally one of the extreme programming adopters. I remember the manifesto being written, basically being told there's now a new name for the things we've been doing. Awesome. Not everybody knows what less is. So can you just describe it for us and we'll come back and ask you some more detailed questions. So just give us an overview. So less originally means large-scale Scrum. Uh, it, its focus was figuring out how to use Scrum when you have more than one team. And that's still part of less, but it changed its focus to figuring out how to create more flexible, adaptive, agile organizations. So it focused a, a lot more on the things around the team because just focusing the teams and how they work together uh, only brings you so far when the things around are still kind of stuck in an old way of working. So the way I remember it from the diagram is that you have your cross-functional agile teams running Scrum, and if you have a product that needs several teams, then they all work off the one backlog and they all have one product owner. Yes. And that's basically it. That's just what we call the framework part. Okay. The preferred view of less nowadays is that it's a combination of the less principles and then the framework or rules, which is mostly the scrum-like picture that explains the events and the flows and things like that. And then guides, which clarify the effects that you can expect to your organization adopting less. And then experiments, which in a way is both the experimental mindset to just try out things within organizations and also our way of sharing ideas between less adoption and product because we want to stay out of the fixed solution thinking, uh, framing everything as experiments that are in context and for a particular problem with no guarantee that the experiment would work or fail in another context. I, I think it's a, it's a nice way of 
promoting the learning, but getting out of the thinking that there's best practices and fixed ways of doing things. So I would urge listeners to go and look at the less framework while we're talking, because there's wonderful, clear pictures there. So it's at less.works. So it seems really pretty simple from the high level point of view. You've got effectively a combined backlog, one product owner, one sprint planning session, one retro. Does each team have its own planning and its own retro, or do you just have one planning and one retro? In the planning side, it is split into two, and the sprint planning one is shared across multiple teams, and two is usually her team, but within the same physical location. Yep. And the retros, they do their own, and then that feeds up to an overall one? It doesn't really feed up to an overall one, it's just different scope retrospectives. Whereas in team retro, you tend to focus on in sprint team things and an overall retro, you focus more on systemic and organizational things that happened. So yeah, I'm doing something quite similar to this at the moment with a program. One of the questions I've got though, is why is there only one product owner? It seems like the product owner would be spread too thin across all those different teams. Why do you think so? Because in scrum, even with a team of eight, the product owner is normally a very demanding role. Like apart from prioritization, the teams expect the product owner to define the requirements for them and to approve everything that's been done. And also they got to spend a lot of time with customers and marketing and stuff like that. Yeah. So all the things that you mentioned in after, apart from prioritization is not something a product owner would do. And that's the team picking that on. We don't want uh, a person to be in between customers and the team and ferrying information between them. The product owner role focuses vision and prioritization. The product owner in less does not make requirements, accept features, stories, clarifies requirements, etc. That's not something a product owner would do. But how are they going to do the prioritization? Don't they need to be talking to a lot of people to be able to do that? People in the business and also customers? Not really. Partly because the larger prioritization, which is what a product owner focuses on most, is mostly related to the vision and short-term goals of your product. And if there's a clarification needed in detail, then the product owner usually gets input from teams and not focuses too much on too fine-grained prioritization. Yeah, we talked to David Pereira a few weeks ago, who's a product owner, and he was saying that he made a transition from leading one team to leading several teams by delegating everything down that he possibly could and focusing on product strategy and priorities. Yeah, but delegating down would suggest that it would be officially his responsibility, and unless it simply isn't. The scrum guide says that it is his responsibility. The scrum guide does not say that a product owner needs to define requirements, write user stories, approve features and things like that. No, but they need to make sure that it's done. I'm pretty sure that's what it says. We can go and look up the scrum guide. 
Shane, ask a question while I'm looking it up. Please do take the 2017 version instead of the latest version, because the latest version is mostly ignored by less. Is that because it got watered down? Well, is that because it changed the intent? Why is it seen not applicable or usable with the changes that were made? Let's just say it wasn't an improvement in our opinion, especially confusion related to two types of teams that only got worse in the later versions, unless we decided to, for now, just not focus on the latest version and who knows, maybe clarify that with an, an, a clearer description in the future. So the current scrum guide says the product owner is accountable for effective product backlog management, which includes the product goal, product backlog items, ordering them, making sure that the backlog is transparent, visible, and understood. They may do it themselves, or they may delegate it to the others in the team, but they remain accountable. And that would, in your opinion, include writing stories, clarifying features and approving them? I didn't say it was my opinion. I'm actually reflecting what people expect from Scrum. And I know teams do expect the product owners to write the requirements. That is where a, a lot of dysfunction in Scrum comes from, because the people who are writing the requirements tend to previously be analysts or business analysts. And organizationally, they actually have no authority whatsoever to make product decisions. And that's what in a lot of scrum adoptions where the product owner is a business analyst with a new name, but not a product owner, They're able to fulfill the responsibilities of visioning, deciding on date, scope, and, and the, the kind of things that a product owner ought to do. But the product owner is responsible for the product backlog, aren't they? Sure. I see the product owner's role is to make the prioritization decisions if there's a choice. If there is a trade-off to be made, they engage with the stakeholders and they provide a single voice back to the team on what the trade-off is. They remove the anti-pattern of writing stupid papers that go up to a bunch of stakeholders who have no understanding what you're talking about and somehow make a trade-off decision. That's the role of a product owner. Now we've seen product owners adopt other things. I read in, in LinkedIn this week about a person complaining that their product owner allocated them a task and only gave them three points. And the task hat was only a sentence and he didn't understand what the sentence was. So we see product owners behave in different ways and product owners who come out of project management or a BA background tend to write lots of things because that's what they're comfortable and good at. And they're not so comfortable and good at engaging with stakeholders to make trade-off decisions. So they will revert back to what they know and the team will easily delegate the writing of those things to somebody else because it's kind of drossy work. And I think that's the best way for a team to operate. I would take it a bit further still because yes, the product owner is responsible and should focus on the trade-offs and priorities, but more important than that still is that the product owner ought to be able to create and share that goal and vision for the product. And once a team is not just the team of picking up items, but they understand what is the product that we're making for whom, then you can actually trust the team with a lot of 
prioritization decisions where you can simply say to the team, okay, what of these things do we think we need to do first? And a team should be able to say this because the vision of the product is this. And therefore, if we work on these items first, that will deliver the most amount of value. So it's not just taking that prioritization decisions, but bringing that purpose of the product to the team. Yeah. So that's the difference between a feature factory team and a team that's working together to achieve a goal, isn't it? Yes, except that within less, all teams work on the same backlog and the individual teams don't have separate longer term goals. They all focus on the whole product. One of the 10 less principles is the principle of whole product focus, which means we do not want isolated, separate, independent teams. Instead, we want teams that understand that what they're doing is part of a larger product and they need to understand that larger product and understand how what they're working on now fits to that larger product. Sure. So let's take this opportunity to go through some of the other less principles. So could you run through them for us? Sure. So the, the principle I just mentioned is the principle of the whole product focus, which to me has been a fascinating principle because it sounds so simple and, and yet it goes against a, a lot of recommendations currently in the agile community. Then the second principle is customer centric, which again, sounds very simple, but it also means, for example, for us that we do not want a product owner in between the team and customers, because that reduces the customer centricness of the team. And we want the team to be in direct contact with whomever is going to use the product. Let's say product had four main groups of features and you had four teams. Wouldn't it be a good idea to have each team focus on one group of features so that they can build up their knowledge about that feature over time? Maybe because that would suggest that the priority of the features of each of those groups would be equal to each other. Okay. But the alternative then would be to break it down at a much lower level at the whole product and then just get people to pick off whatever's next in priority, regardless of what their team had been working on before. Sort of. What happens in less is that you take all features together, you put it in a product backlog and just like scrum, you prioritize the backlog and then. If you wish, just like Scrum, you take the top of the backlog, but you just don't give it to one team, but to the teams. And then there's a conversation between the teams talking about how best to solve that. So which team would want to work on what, which team would like to learn different areas. So there you might get that conversation where one team says, we're working with this customer before we know him, therefore we'd like to pick up these items from the backlog. And then perhaps another team saying, you've been working there for a while already. And if we look further on the backlog, there's a lot of more features coming related to that. So therefore this sprint, we would like to pick that up instead and, and have your support with that. So you have this cross team conversation in the beginning of the sprint planning on how the teams are going to solve the top of that backlog but they are not pre-assigned in any way to the team. 
Yeah. So what you're saying is that we don't put hard and fast swim lanes in place and teach the teams to stay in their swim lanes. We don't create isolation by design. What we say is just a shitload of work to be done. And we trust the teams to talk to each other and figure out what the next best bit of hives priority work they can deliver. And they talk to each other via usual collaboration and then decide and get on with it. So we don't provide a framework for them. We just trust them that if we give them the goal, they'll work together and achieve it. Is that what I heard? Yes. And in addition to that, we promote as much cross team collaboration as possible so that for example, if there's items that are re closely related in the product backlog, then it is very common for two different teams to take that on purpose so that the two teams will need to work closely during the next sprint rather than trying to make the teams as independent as possible during a sprint. So in that sense, it's opposite to a lot of recommendations to try to create independent, isolated teams who can focus on their individual team output. That's not what we want. We want to have multiple teams working together and constantly learning from each other. So what you're saying is two teams will actually reform for a period of time to achieve the goal. They don't reform. So they typically stay within the teams, although in practice it is the choice of the teams. It's just the boundary between the teams becomes a little bit vague. In identity and work accountability, it is very clear, but in your daily work, it is very common for you to spend the half a day pairing up with somebody in another team because he happens to know something that you need for something that you're working on now. So in the actual working together, the boundaries become much more vague. So how do you decide which team works on which thing? Is there some sort of leadership team? Do you get a hundred people in a room together like SAFE or what do you do? Is it three amigos? No, the teams together would decide that. And because of the way less is structured, so there's two scales. So you have basic less, which is up to about eight teams. And then you have less huge where you divide the backlog in areas and each area is up to about eight teams. What that means in practice is that this discussion cross teams on who's going to work on what at maximum involves eight teams. And for me, I always have a rule of thumb that eight teams is maximum around 50 people or so. So in sprint planning one, you will have maximum around 50 people together talking to each other to decide how they are going to divide the items that are on the top of the backlog, uh, which team is going to do what, etc., etc. So would you recommend a 50 person sprint planning workshop? That's the common way of doing that. Yes. The most common way of working on this is where you take the product backlog and you print it on cards and you just put it on a table and the teams gather around the table and they typically have a conversation with each other about which of the items, which team would take and how they're going to collaborate. Most of the time it takes maximum about 30 minutes or so. And then each of the teams break up to do their own sprint planning. So what is the role of management in less and why would management support it? 
management's focus in less is not so much on the day-to-day activities and definitely not on the deadlines, the features, etc., the product owner related things, but it should be on the capability of the teams, the skills, the things that are blocking the teams from expanding and improving the quality and output of the different teams. Okay. So why would management want to implement less? Because it seems like there might be less managers involved. There are some less adoptions that involved removing some management. Most less adoptions that I've been involved in did not explicitly remove management other than things like project and program management, which is obviously not required in less because there's no projects or programs. So how do the teams get their funding then? That's where the product backlog is very helpful. You see what the features are that are coming for your product, roughly what potential value there might be delivered to your product. And then if you wish, you invest for a period of time in that product. So say for three months, I'm going to invest X amount of budget within this product without tying it directly to that scope. So the the product owner is free to change the scope during that time period. And then typically you'll stop and you'll look at the features that are coming and you ask the question, do we want to continue investing the same amount of budget in this product more or less? We've talked about less to a number of our guests before, and it always comes up as a a lightweight scaling framework, which, which Shane and I are attracted to, particularly in comparison to SAFE, which is very heavy. What are the benefits of less in comparison to SAFE? As an organization, you need to deeply understand what kind of problems you face. Most of the time, when I see an organization adopt SAFE, they say, we want to do an agile framework, therefore we buy X, but not now in our development, we have this and this and this problems. We want to improve those problems and SAFE is going to help with those particular problems. One of the biggest problems I see is that people, especially management often do not understand what's not working in the development and why. And that's where the focus needs to be first. Yeah. You often see safe implementations where the scrum teams aren't working at all and people don't understand really what agile is and they're not even doing the basic things. And yet at the same time, they've got this massive safe framework with thousands of pages of things to do sitting on the top of it. Yes. And usually the first thing I ask for an organization is to work within one or a few of the teams for a while. And then most of the time after a couple of weeks, I'd go back and say, the teams are not using Scrum yet. You're not there yet even. And then it feels often that they're going backwards rather than forwards. Whereas what's happening is that they're hopefully, if they have enough of persistence, just start understanding better what is actually going on within the teams. When you came out with less there wasn't a Scrum scaling framework. Now we have Scrum Nexus and Scrum of Scrums. Why not just use those? I'm not interested in 
selling or comparing less. I'm interested in building products and getting more experiences. To me, Nexus and Scrum at scale doesn't provide the same amount of learning and structure. So I'm not that interested in it, but I'm not, not very interested in comparing them and more interested in figuring out how we can better help organizations build products because that was the first goal anyway. The goal has never been to sell a competing scaling framework. Definitely, we did want to make sure that we have enough of a name and alternative that we don't end up in safe adoptions because we wouldn't want to live in such an environment. Why don't we talk through a case study then where you've actually done less? On the less side, there's the case studies. They're like experience reports. The last one published was the less adoption at the BMW autonomous driving with hundreds and hundreds of people there. And it describes a couple of years of gradually adopting less what went well, what went wrong. And this is a common theme in less adoptions where management wanted to go too fast in their adoption that then caused problems where there's a conflict with the previous organizational culture, things like HR practices. It describes in detail the wonderful conflicts with their engineering culture and uh, trying to change the working in silos versus working in shared code. I think in that sense, a typical example of a less adoption, except for this one was somewhat large. Okay. We started asking you about the principles before, and then we got sidetracked into a discussion about products. So the ones I mentioned were uh, whole product focus and customer centric, which are two easy to understand principles, but they have a huge impact. System thinking is what I like to call the foundational principle of less. Less was created simply by thoroughly looking at what's going on, what problems do we have, doing experiments to understand where you are now, go see, understanding the reality of the teams and experimentation. And a loop of those three created what we now call less. Then there's two principles that if you wish have been elevated uh, from Scrum, uh, which are transparency and empirical process control. Then we have the large-scale Scrum is Scrum principle, which is how can we get Scrum to work with multiple teams? So then if we have multiple teams, how can we make sure that we don't lose the essence of Scrum? And at the same time, it means we want to try to simplify problems by first figuring out how we would solve them in a one-team scenario before figuring out how to do that in a multi-team scenario. So an example of that is where you prioritize the backlog. In one team, you prioritize the backlog. You take the top of the backlog and you give it to the team and you let the team figure out how to do that. Unless you take the top of the backlog, you prioritize it and you give it to the teams and you let the teams figure out how to do that. So we basically look at how things work in one team 
and then ask the question, can we just do that also with multiple teams? Or how can we get that to work? Then we have lean thinking and queuing theory. And then we have continuous improvement towards perfection. In less adoptions, we like to say you accept reality without giving up on perfection. And so you're constantly first thinking, okay, how would a perfect situation look like? And then you just go back to what is the current reality? And then you ask, based on the current reality, what is one small thing that we can do to at least get a little bit closer to that perfection? But you don't give up on that perfection and consider it unachievable. It's just you, you focus on the reality and on the small steps that you can take there. There's a certain way in which you might want to do less adoptions, but we always start off with what is the current reality? And if the current reality is we need to focus first on test automation or not all teams want to be involved in multi-team refinement yet, then you accept that and you just take a smaller step without giving up on that perfection vision. Okay. So I want to raise a criticism of Scrum with you that I think also applies to less, and that is Scrum creates batches of work. And so therefore we shouldn't do Scrum at all. We should do Kanban and particularly at the team of teams level, we should do portfolio Kanban. What, what do you think about that? Isn't portfolio Kanban by definition batches of work? Because portfolio means that you keep your items very large. When you keep your items very large, they're batches of work. And then portfolio means you're prioritizing large batches of work. Yeah, but you're not doing it by sprint or by program increment. So you can start and stop them at any time. A program implement could be considered just a scaled up version of scrum it could just be a three-month sprint which is how some of the safe people think about it to have a situation where teams are scrambling towards an end of a sprint to get things done does cause batching let's say you have a successful sprint in which everything you planned got done then the next sprint you're starting again. So there's not a smooth flow of work through the system because you're stopping and starting and you're trying to get things finished. That by its nature causes a batches of work in your system. Of the things you need in a team to function, not as a set of individuals, but as a team is, is a certain constraint. Mm. And the sprint constraint helps a team to function as a team. If everyone has their individual items, then you can just work on your individual items and you don't really need to care about that anymore. The lead time increases because of that. Now, Scrum chose the sprint as a constraint and Kanban chose the whip limit as a constraint. And from my perspective, they're basically the same thing. They create a constraint that forces a team to not work as individuals, but to work as a team. It's just a different practice for doing that. And common misconception in Scrum and less is that you actually wait till the end of a sprint for releasing things. And clearly that's a bad idea. You can adopt continuous delivery release 20 times a day when you use Scrum or less also. There's no batching up from that perspective. Yeah, 
we recommend Scrum to teams, but I use Kanban at the same time. Do you do that as well, Shane, like Scrum Ban? I have never worked with a Scrum team where we didn't use a Kanban board to visualize our work. Do we focus on work in progress? We, we try to see that when one of the developers in the Scrum team has six tasks in motion, that we have a conversation as a team about whether that's an effective way of working or not. Do we use empirical controls to actually monitor and, and measure that flow? I don't come from a stats background, so I'm not a strong coach in that space. So I tend to do visual cueing, team behavior, then empirical controls. So very like Kanban, but I, it would be fair to say I have not seen a scrum team in New Zealand that didn't run a Kanban and they probably all just use that stupid Jira stuff without any empirical controls in terms of actually monitoring the flow of work and the time between task start, task completion and, and estimation. So the answer is scrum, very small barn. Yeah. I like to have a few more columns. I like to get the team to basically map out their process that they're going through and to set up columns for them because I find that combination of Scrum and Kanban works well. I'd say that is extremely harmful. Why is that? Because it suggests that work happens in a certain sequence. Whereas a lot of agile development in team is about learning how to parallelize that. To give an example, the, the teams I've worked with now, we've had the ex-business analyst, who's clearly not the product owner, but a member of a team, often pre-work things for the refinement to prepare them so that makes the refinement smoother. Now, one of the things we started doing now is to first not pre-work anymore and always do the refinement with the whole team together so that you don't have one person telling the other people what it is, but instead the whole team exploring. And then second, trying to keep it as short as possible and do most of that inside the sprint. We asked the question, there's still a lot of things unknown about this feature. Do we think that the unknown things would change the size of the feature? And if the answer is no, then we say, we'll leave it unknown. And just in the sprint, while it's being implemented, and being tested, we'll also discover those unknown things. And all of the things, analysis, UI design, implementation, uh, test automation, just happen in parallel. They don't happen in sequence. And then if you start to put them in a Kanban board in sequence, then it reinforces that individual sequential way of working. So the concept of bringing in high risk or unknown work, if we stack the iteration with a massive amount of unknown work, it's harder for the team to actually deliver something that's shippable because they're bringing in too much risky work. So do you find that the less teams tend to naturally balance it out? They will bring in some work that they think has no uncertainty, and then they'll bring in a small number of unknowns because they know they're dangerous. There's work that they haven't understood. Do you find they tend to naturally balance out when they bring the work into the iteration? Not really, at least with the teams that I work with, we want to have shippable things at the end of the sprint. But if that's only one of the items of the five that we picked up, that's okay. So therefore, if we pick an item that 
has quite some unknowns. And then during the sprint, we go, oh, wow, it is bigger than we expected. We thought in the refinement that it isn't, but we discovered it is. Then we want the team to be relatively comfortable saying, it is what it is. The other four are going out and we'll make sure that we have this one shippable because this is still the highest priority item. Shane, I think we've come to our time, so we better do our summaries. Yeah, this is, a, I've done a little reading on Lease. I haven't been lucky enough to be able to experiment with Lease with a customer. There's also not a lot of visibility of Lease in, in New Zealand. It's gone down the stupid safe track and then ad hoc. So a couple of things I picked up. So I love the idea of shared experiments. You talk about teams experiment and then those experiments are pushed back into the community of less practitioners. So I really like that. That's the kind of the same concept I have in my head of patterns. And while browsing the less site, I love the statement. There is no such things as best practice. There are only practices that good within a certain context. So that aligns with me around this idea of patterns in a certain context have value and other contexts, try them and see what the hell happens. Sometimes in con some contexts, they don't really fit and solve your problem. So go do something else. So I like that. I like the idea that you talked about the product owner is not between the team and the customer. It's not their role to be in the way. They're there to help remove blockers. They're here to remove the need for stupid committees, but they're not there to be the middleware person. So I really like the idea of the teams aren't in swim lanes. We don't want the teams isolated or separate. We want a whole product focus. I see two patterns in the world at the moment. One with a more matrixy Spotify, -y, we're trying to isolate teams. So they are in a swim lane and get the work done with no impediment. And then this one, which is just give the team the goal, give them the work to be done, prioritize what's important, get the hell out of the way and let them build their own way of working. And so. I think they both have value. You just need to pick which flavor you are and don't get confused. So I thought less was just about scaling. And that's because I wanted to find patterns for scaling that weren't safe. And everything I read kind of aligned with that. But what I heard today is it's not about scaling. It's definitely about not scaling using hierarchies. I get that. But it is that holistic view. It's that systems thinking. It's look at the whole system, the whole way of working, and then do as little as possible to remove the impediment. So when you have three to five teams, we know there are problems. And for me, less comes with the idea of what's the minimum amount of thing you can do to remove the impediments without overbaking it. Hence the name. And I really like that. Just as a clarification, the minimum amount of things is definitely not the easiest thing. Yes. Sometimes doing less is harder than doing lots. I think less huge is just such a cool term. It's just such a cool sentence, but actually the idea that you get to a certain number of people that actually you need to figure out another part of the scaling problem, because we go from 50 to 250 and we have a whole new set of problems. So I like the fact that it focuses on the different things. I like the idea that we solve the problems we have in our way of working with one team before we even think about scaling. The people talk to me about, well, how do we start off with 10 teams on day one? And my answer is don't start off one team, do something well, and then add another one and then figure out the problems and solve them. It's ridiculous that we can do a standing start with 250 people on day one. It's just stupid. And the other thing that we've heard as a theme constantly is the team need to understand the goal, like understanding the goal of what we need to achieve and letting them get on the work is key. We're not there to allocate tasks. 
And last one for me, we naturally put constraints in front of teams to force a change in behavior, a change in way of working. With Scrum, we use an increment. With Kanban, we use work in progress as the constraint. We are putting unnatural barriers in the way of the team to change the way the team works. That's the goal. My view is over time, the team start solving their old problems. And sometimes we can remove those constraints. We can remove the idea of an increment. If the teams are just flowing, we can remove the concept of estimation. If the team are just bringing in enough work that they can do in the time they promise. So that's okay. It's just, we're changing the experiment. We're changing the patterns because the context has changed. And so last thing for me though, is I find some of the other scaling frameworks easier to understand and find information about. And I think that's one of the downsides is less that it's not so visible, but then, as you said, you're not there to sell a scaling framework. You're there to help teams do good work and some of the less things are the best way of doing that. So yeah, I, I like it much more than lots of the other ones. Yeah. That was me. Murray, what you got? So I think that there are times when it's important that teams focus on particular features of a product. And, and those are times when there's a lot of knowledge gaps and knowledge and learning is a big problem and you've got a lot of new people or you're scaling quickly or something like that. And I think in that case, it helps a lot if a team focus on a particular area of a product because they can get to know that quicker and easier and become more effective than trying to understand every part of a large product, which is why Spotify has their squads and tribes. And I think once teams became mature and got to know their product and they're more experienced, then at that time, it would be interesting to try this idea of any story can go to any team and the teams work it out amongst themselves. But for me, when knowledge transfer and learning is a big issue for people, I'm I'm not keen on that part of it. But I can see what you mean though. Let's say you have five teams of 10 people working on five features. Then you've got this baked in assumption that each of your features are equally important and need equal amount of effort. And that is not actually true. So maybe it's a transitional thing to do it that way until you get better. I'm still skeptical that you can have one product owner for 50 or 60 people without giving them any help. I think they do need a lot of help, particularly if they're a real product manager who's spending quite a lot of time on the marketing and user experience side of things. So I like the idea of a product owner team where there's a number of people helping the product owner. And I just see product owners getting swamped all the time. Now I do understand what Scrum says about this and how it's supposed to be, but it just doesn't work that way in practice. So there has to be some dialogue between what people do and what the theory says they should do. And I guess the last thing is less is not very popular anymore. And it's because SAFE has done a great job out of monetizing SAFE for trainers. Trainers can make a lot of money out of SAFE. Consulting companies can make a lot of money implementing SAFE. SAFE has the answers to everything. I don't think SAFE is agile, actually. I think it violates most of the key principles of agile, but it's 
easier to buy because it's commercialized and i can see that less feels like a non-commercial community offering i don't know if it is or not but it feels much more that sort of thing like the agile alliance or something like that than one of these bigger machines that has a lot of marketing money behind it i like the simplicity of less i like all the principles a lot and i'm going to have a go at it when i can do you want to respond to any of that bass maybe maybe as just one addition to the non-commercial versus community driven for me it's more a sustainable versus not sustainable thing i don't believe that safe well i don't believe it's a good idea but it's also not sustainable to continue that so it's more like that is likely to go away uh, and with less we are trying to explicitly avoid that we think it's a good way of building products and not necessarily a good way of selling a framework but we'd like to do that for the next 10 20 30 years and thus it needs to be growing sustainably rather than with a big hype yeah i'd, I'd agree with that if you're an organization that wants your teams to work in a better way and build better products, and then you're starting to scale and you're hitting some problems that always come when you scale, then have a look at things like less because they have patterns and ideas that might help you with those scaling problems. And so for me, less has been more sustainable because it's about providing patterns that may fix that problem for you rather than focused on implementing agile sake and and i hope that's what happens in the market right? i hope it becomes true because then we'll have organizations that are helping their teams work in a different way uh, and the teams will enjoy it more deliver more and have more fun doing it which is what it's about for me so how can people find you obviously we've given the less website which is less.works do you have a blog do you write regularly at the moment not a lot if I write, then usually it's on the blog on the less site. So it would be the same next to working in a team and working with the less adoption. I do training, we like in-person training. And that's why there's been just a lot less training over yeah. the last two years. Luckily that's changing again and we can see real people again. There will be doing some training, mostly in Europe, sometimes in, in Asia, and I should be planning to be in the the us site also again this okay so thanks to you and craig larman for developing this great resource for everybody it's very interesting to read through and we really appreciate you coming on yep thank you and we'll catch you all later that was the No Nonsense Agile Podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.